Tianakwe. My name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, we chat with renowned biologist Jonathan Balcom about fish behaviour, sentience, and the state of aquatic life in 2020. Turns out fish are pretty amazing, and there's a lot you probably don't know about them. And the government is spending large to see the country through an economic crisis. There's going to be some big checks being cashed in the coming months. And some of those checks are going towards animal exploiting industries. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. We're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We'll go beyond the news cycle and dive into some of the complexities that surrounds the exploitation of animals. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Pledges start at $5 a month. Patrons can unlock bonus content as well as have a say in the future of the show and what we might discuss. Your support will help us to expand the show and talk about more topics in greater depth. In 1991, we had the mother of all budgets. This was the first budget delivered by the new National Party Minister of Finance, Ruth Richardson. Her economic reforms became known in the media as Ruthanasia, which is essentially an extension of the neoliberal reforms introduced by the previous Labour government. Massive cuts were made to welfare and spending. Two weeks ago, Finance Minister Grant Robertson delivered his new budget, which lays the groundwork for New Zealand's economic stimulus. What do we call this one? The Big Daddy Budget? The Budget to End All Budgets? Labour have called it the Rebuilding Budget. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it. But regardless, this is a massive budget, with the government committing to spending $50 billion to see us through the economic fallout from COVID-19. $20 billion is earmarked for future spending. This is massive amounts of spending, the likes of which we haven't seen in decades. So, what does this budget mean for animals? Well, the government has committed to spending $5.4 million over four years to improve animal welfare. They're also investing $45.3 million into the horticulture sector and to help workers with vocational training who want to transition to the agriculture sector. I spoke to Deborah Ashton. SAFE's chief executive, to ask what she thinks of the spending. It wasn't really clear to us, I don't think, how that uh, $5.4 million was going to be spent on animal welfare. But the information that we've received is that it was mostly going towards helping farmers source feed for their animals um, during the drought. And, and you know, that's, that's occurred in many areas of the country. But we don't have much more information than that. Um, but I am really concerned that there's a lot of hungry animals out there on the farms and they won't be having a pleasant time. And even with this handout, I doubt it's really going to be enough. The key issue there as well is that on a good day, MPI does not have the resources needed to really fully cover off animal welfare. So on a bad day, uh, which is through drought and the challenges of a pandemic, I'm still not really sure that that money will go far enough to addressing the key issues of animal welfare. And I guess um, that's perhaps why we need to start thinking about, you know, is, is farming 
animals the um, right thing going forward. Maybe we need to think about less farming and more horticulture. Further to that, they've included spending for horticulture in the budget as well, both with the animal welfare and horticulture spending. There isn't a lot of detail in there, is there? No, there isn't a lot of detail, but I, I think that generally we we can expect that the majority of that money, and, and from what we've heard, is that it is going towards helping farmers source feed. So it's not necessarily um, money for the feed, but it's helping them to, to source the feed. But it's not really clear. But the information that um, I guess I've received is that um, farmers are, are certainly still crying out for more. Um, and this is where, you know, long term, is the farming of animals sustainable? Um, is this going to be a continued issue for farmers? Um, and, you know, maybe maybe we need to start looking at alternatives. The budget also included funding for the environment. But just like with the animal welfare spending, the detail isn't all that clear on how that money is going to be spent. So I spoke with Genevieve Toop from Greenpeace, and I asked her what her reaction to the budget was. To be honest, I was quite disappointed. I think there were some good, really good things in there for the environment and, and for people. Um, but when you look at how much in total was spent, there was really only loose change left over for the climate um, and for the ecological crises that we're facing. And it kind of mimics how this government has been operating since it, it got in power. There's this rhetoric um, and the gap between this transformational rhetoric and what they actually do is is quite quite significant but I'm still hopeful because they did signal that there's 20 billion more dollars that they can spend um, and I really hope that they're going to make some big investments in um, building the infrastructure we need um, to support the shift to regenerative farming in New Zealand um, and also get our get our other sources of emissions um, down into the future. Jacinda Ardern said this would be a transformative government, but you're saying you don't really see that transformative spending there. No, I mean, we did see a billion dollars um, set aside for the for environmental um, restoration work uh, and pest control, um, which is, you know, we haven't seen spending like that before. Um, and a lot of that is going to go towards making sure there's fencing um, and and streamside planting and wetland restoration on farms, and that's good. We really need that. But um, that's just ambulance at the bottom of the cliff stuff. We really need to see um, investment that shifts our nation away from our, our um, reliance on intensive dairying um, and intensive livestock farming for um, our exports. Uh, otherwise, we're just going to keep seeing more pollution in our, in our rivers and we're not going to get those agricultural emissions down, which we really, really have to do. Um, and we released a, a, a policy package um, that laid out um, what we think the government should invest in in order to help get this transition away from intensive livestock farming. Um, and really, they didn't invest in any of that apart from the easy one, the fencing and the replanting streams. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's good. I'm not going to, you know, say that it's bad that we are putting a billion dollars into the environment. That's good, but it's not enough. We are, you know, like I said, we're many of our ecosystems um, and our fresh water and our climate are on the brink and in crisis and um, we need to see it at the forefront of any spending. In a pre-budget announcement, Deputy Prime Minister and Leader of New Zealand First, Winston Peters, announced as part of the budget 
a $72.5 million emergency package for the racing industry. Borrowing a line from Trump, he declared, we're going to make racing great again. Peters says that the racing industry contributes a lot to New Zealand's economy and is therefore worthy of public spending. Others would disagree though. The Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses say that the reality for the racing industry is that it's been in decline for the past decade. They've started a petition demanding the government withdraws the bailout, saying that it's baffling that racing is even considered an essential sport at a time when the government's priority should be the lives and well-being of New Zealanders. Aaron Cross from Greyhound Protection League was equally appalled, commenting that the racing industry was a cruel and pointless pursuit and New Zealanders should not be subsidising animal cruelty masquerading as entertainment. It's pretty hard to take for animal lovers who don't want a bar of the industry to to know that we're working hard and paying taxes in order to subsidise an industry that's apparently quite flush with cash. You know, they claim to earn $1.6 billion, that's yet to be verified, and um, yet, yet we're still expected to stump up tens of millions, 72 million this time around, uh, just to keep them running. It just doesn't sound right. I, I, if anything, they've proven that they're already financially irresponsible and we shouldn't be doubling down and you know, just giving them more. It's important that people understand the state of racing financially. They've currently got a $45 million debt that they've run up because they wanted to increase prize money. And so 72 million of um, that we're just giving to the industry now, 45 is going to get swallowed in debt instantly. 26 million is going to get swallowed up in the cost of setting up their latest betting platform. Uh, and then they've got another 20 million spend on the cards for new tracks, two new tracks. And then they've got an annual cost of $17 million every year for their software licensing. So if you add all that up together, it's closer to $100 million spend right from the get-go, most of which is just covering debt. And so how are we really looking at a sustainable industry? I don't know, there comes a point where you've just got to call time on an industry and say, well, look, you know, it's a big industry, but it's a dud industry. Deborah Ashton from SAFE agreed. Well, my first reaction was, what are they thinking? Um, Because, you know, it's disappointing to see taxpayers' money going towards uh, horse racing. Um, And in particular, you know, we've got 5.4 million going towards animal welfare, and then we've got 72 million that is um, going to really be contributing to animal cruelty. We know, um, you know, there's a lot of cruelty on the racetrack, well, both on and off the racetrack. In fact, um, you know, horses risk uh, deep bleeding um, inside their lungs. Uh, They can have heart attacks while they're racing, um, while they're racing or afterwards. They can break bones um, and at the very worst, death. So, um, you know, this is all for the sake of entertainment and um, it's time that that was really consigned to the history books um you know animals and entertainment is starting to be considered around the world as really unacceptable because it's never putting the animals first the animal welfare will always be compromised and um you you can't have it both ways 72 million dollars for horse racing and 5.4 million dollars for quote-unquote animal welfare is it Misplaced priorities, do you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, this this horse racing is a dying industry. It's dying for a reason because people aren't, you know, considering, you know, a lot of people are reconsidering 
how they want to spend their money or how they want to have fun. And people are aware of the animal welfare issues. So uh, I guess um, horse racing needs to consider why it's a dying industry and why it needs such leverage to pick itself up again um, and get moving. Um, Animal welfare is something that New Zealanders do generally care about. You know, we've seen a lot of surveys where people care about animals in cages, uh, birds in cages, pigs in in farrowing crates. So we know that, um, you know, these are things that people are aware of and yet we're putting, you know, such a small amount towards the animal welfare aspect and and we're ploughing a whole lot more into an industry that really is getting that recognition that this is unacceptable. As Kiwis who care about animals, we have to make it clear to the governments that we don't want any more money from the government's economic stimulus going towards animal exploiting industries. We'll be talking about this in greater detail on future episodes of Animal Matters. Today on the show, we are joined by Jonathan Balcom. Uh, Jonathan is a biologist with a PhD in ethology and the study of animal behaviour. He was formerly the department chair for animal studies with the Humane Society University and director of animal sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy. He now works as an independent author and has published four books, including the New York Times bestseller, What a Fish Knows. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Will. So to, to kick things off, the the idea that fish don't feel pain has been around for decades. Since you're an expert in, in fish sentience and behaviour, perhaps this is one myth that you can put to bed for us. Do, do fish feel pain? Well, no question in my mind. There was a an experiment done on about 30 zebrafish. They were kept in a complex tank with two chambers. One chamber was dimly lit with places to hide. It's the kind of place that little fish like to go. And the other chamber was brightly lit and barren. And all of the zebrafish spent all of their time on the dimly lit place to hide side of the tank. And that continued to be the case after the scientists injected some of the fish with uh, acid, which probably presumably would hurt for a while, or with the saline, which presumably wouldn't hurt for a while. However, when the scientists dripped a painkiller, lidocaine, in the other tank, the brightly lit one that all the fish would normally avoid, some of them started swimming over to that side. uh, And it was only the ones injected with acid. So that showed that um, these fishes are have the wherewithal to seek pain relief if they have the opportunity. And they're also willing to pay a cost to get pain relief. They, they're willing to go and swim in an area that they don't feel very safe in and they would normally avoid. So to me, uh, on those grounds, that's very compelling evidence for, for fish. In fact, I, you know, I would scratch my head wondering why anyone would continue to want more, demand more evidence for fish pain after an experiment like that has been done. So where, did you, where do you think the, um, this misunderstanding, I suppose, that fish feel pain, where do you think that came from? I think it comes from the area our alienation to fish more than any other vertebrate. Um, the fact is they're the one group that spends all their time pretty much in water. There are a few exceptions, of course, but they've evolved in a different medium. They don't breathe air. They don't vocalize the way terrestrial animals can and do. It turns out they make lots of sounds, and we may get into that. Uh, their sounds are evolved to be propagated underwater. So, you know, the expression of pain in the fish 
in in the air is a bit like us sticking our head under the water and shouting in pain. Uh, not going to go very far. Not going to convince many people. Most people won't be able to hear hear the person who's shouting. So uh, you know, it's it, it. But but if you get onto their terms and you look at their behavior and study their behavior in their in their realms underwater, which now underwater photography and scuba gear and all that sort of thing allows us to do in a way that we couldn't before. We can see that they live very rich and complex lives. Um, so I think, you know, we're in an era now where we're able to witness what we couldn't witness perhaps before. And the science is showing very clearly these are complex animals who are very much like their cousins on, on dry land. And that, that leads me on to my next point. Your book, What a Fish Knows, addresses many inaccuracies that people consider to be facts and like the fact that fish do feel pain. But what are some of the other ways that people might recognize themselves in fishes? Um, let's see. I mean, just let me list some of the some of their achievements. Collaboration, uh, tool use, planning. Uh, they fall for optical illusions, the same ones that we do. They can learn by observing others. They can solve new problems. They can innovate. Uh, there are fish that communicate with, with each other using gestures, such as a head shake or a body shimmy. Uh, there are fishes who form mental maps, uh, so it's not just memory, not just an impressive memory, but they're actually able to uh, form th- sort of a three-dimensional mental image of, a, of an area and use that information to their advantage. Uh, they have recognition systems. Uh, they've been shown not only to recognize each other as individuals, uh, but they recognize our, us, our faces. A, a clever study was done, published in Germany just a few years ago, showing that what, what aquarium fish keepers had suspected and claimed for long times. They know it's me. It's not just uh, anyone who feeds them. They come out when it's my, me who brings because I'm the one who gives them the food. And uh, lo and behold, when these archer fish, which can squirt water up into the air, uh, when they were presented with touch pads above their above their experimental tanks, a very handy way to test them, they would squirt water at a familiar face, and they could pick up that uh, that familiar human face out of forty unfamiliar faces. So that's not a by far that's by far not a comprehensive list of of what fishes are able to do, but um, I think it's indicative that they they have complex inner lives you mentioned that um there are examples of of fishes using tools could you go into that a little bit further yeah well needless to say i'm not going to start talking about hammers and screwdrivers because uh fishes don't have hands to manipulate such things however they they have mouths with which they can blow water to for instance uncover uh edibles that are buried under the sand by blowing water with their mouth i just mentioned archer fishes which squirt water above the uh, from the below just below the surface with specially evolved mouth um, and they squirt water up to I think 10 feet or I guess you'd say three meters in New Zealand uh, and they can uh, and they can uh, knock an insect off a, off a branch or a leaf by doing that but they can also quite accurately with practice they have to they, you know they have to go through an apprenticeship to get good at this stuff quite accurately pick off flying insects even my guess is they're amateur entomologists because they probably know the difference between a beetle and a dragonfly and a and a, a large fly or maybe a bee which they maybe don't want to catch for obvious reasons so um, they're able to do that and those are examples of using water as a tool 
but also um, there's some fishes which have been observed, and you can watch YouTube videos of this. It's all available of, of, of a, a tusk fish of various species, and I'm sure they're not the only ones to do this, but uh, they've been filmed uh, uncovering a, a clam and carrying it very deliberately, probably with, a, with foresight as to where exactly they're taking it to a piece of coral or a rock, which will then be used as an anvil against which to smash this unfortunate mollusk with a series of well-coordinated, well-timed head flicks and releases. Yeah, take I, take a walnut, take a walnut in the shell into a swimming pool sometime, and try and smash it against the wall of the pool underwater. You'll find that's not an easy task. Uh, these animals are able to do that, uh, probably through practice, uh, but it's certainly a skill, and I would say it, it very clearly involves planning and intention, and it's tool use because the anvil uh, functions as a tool against which to smash the uh, the mollusk. Another myth i suppose that that's actually just um sprung to mind is and this is probably more specifically to to what's considered goldfish but that that fish have a two minute memory or two second memory or a very short memory essentially is that one is there any truth to that or is that also a myth so to speak myth myth it's a myth uh i believe it's the three second memory (laughs) i might have forgotten what you said though so i'm not sure um but uh, yeah, it's it's very much just a myth. Uh, I don't know what it's based on. Probably some anecdote from centuries ago, and the poor fish gets saddled with that myth into the modern era. Um, an example from uh, a researcher in in Australia, Cullen Brown. He tested this with rainbow fish, which are very small fish, which I think live only two or three years through their full adult span. And he tested them um, with 11 months elapsing between learning a task, which was to swim through a little hole of a barrier that was coming and squeezing them against the wall. They wanted to get through to the other side. And they had to learn that there was a little opening, say, at the bottom left of that barrier. And they learned that and found when he tested them a month later, they immediately went through the, the right hole and the inexperienced ones that were introduced wouldn't, but they quickly learned from observing their other other rainbow fish. And then when he tested them 11 months later, which was you know almost a half of their entire lifespan, um, they immediately remembered the, the ones that had the experience. And again, the control group, which had no prior experience, were bewildered, didn't know where to swim through the hole. They had to learn it, but they learned it much faster if they had an example to follow uh, by the experienced fish. So a simple experiment like that. Um, we talk about, uh, I, I, me- I mentioned mental mapping a few minutes ago. That refers to a remarkable little fish called the frillfin goby, which has been very well studied. And uh, these fish live in the coastlines in the intertidal zone on the Atlantic Ocean. And it's been seen that they can jump accurately from one tide pool to another, which raises the question, how do they know how far to jump and how do they know which direction? Because otherwise, it's a leap of faith and you're going to end up stranded on the rocks. For that matter, why do they want to do that? Well, it's not just for fun. They do it when an octopus or a heron or some other predator may come along and they have every good reason to want to get out of that little tide pool. Um, How do they do it, though? Well, a series of clever experiments in captivity found that they actually make a mental map by swimming down into the nooks and crannies at high tide. So when the water comes in and they can swim over these these future tide pools, they can explore and, and they produce a mental, in one day, they produce a mental map is is really the technical term it's it's a it's a very sort of maybe a three-dimensional memory of that layout and they're able to convert that from the sort of the horizontal the vertical view when you're so you're looking over it 
uh, to a horizontal view when they're under the water in one of those tide pools a few hours later, and they're able to jump accurately out to sea if they need to. Uh, it's quite a remarkable skill, and as I say, they can learn it in one day, and when they're tested 40 days later without any intervening experience with it, they remember where each tide pool was. So a little fish brain can do a lot. They're experts in topography, by the sounds of it. That's right. It's really top- topographical mapping. I think they'd be useful to have on any geologist or geographer's team. So in a lot of your works, uh, you prefer to refer to a group of fishes a- as fishes. For example, the fishes in the pond swam in circles rather than the fish in the pond swam in circles. I've read some of this reasoning in the past and I've tried to introduce um introduce this into into my own own speech and and when i started doing it my partner gave me this very strange look because she's an honor student in literature and it just kind of went against everything that she was familiar with but uh, i tried to explain it and i didn't do a very good job of it so i thought perhaps you could explain the reasoning behind why you prefer to use fishes rather than fish as a plural well it is a bit it, I admit it's a, it's a bit dogmatic of me to do this. Uh, I, I did it and explained the rationale in my book uh, because uh, I want to convey that these are individuals, just as with any other complex animal, each individual is different. Um, and when we just have the word fish, it's sort of just, it's bland and it just lumps them all together. The word fishes is a legitimate word. It's usually in science used to refer to more than one species. And, but not one, more than one individual. And I know there's some other words like bison, and there's you know there's some other words that we use for animals that are referring maybe referring to the plural, but we use the singular form. Um, so it was really a device to get people thinking about f- these creatures, fishes, as not just a fish. Just it's just it's just a fish. Look at all those fish. It sort of makes them all the same, and it's just a, it's just how language tend is actually language is a very powerful tool for um, re- representing how we perceive something, and so that's why I did it. Uh, I've actually, you know, I was contacted by the philosopher Peter Singer about this. He, he was finding it a little awkward in interviews to refer to them as fishes. And I, I gave him a little slack, slack, not flack. I gave him a little slack. I said, I, I understand. And, you know, if if you come off being a little kooky or weird, it's probably not worth it. Um, so I, I give people liberty liberty to say it how they like. But I do want people to realize that these are, we're talking about each one is a unique individual with his or her own personality. And by the way, personalities have been studied and demonstrated in fish, fishes as well. It has real-world consequences, this, um, because when we think about the exploitation of fish, for example, fish or fishes on, um, now I'm going to be, I'm going to keep trying to say it for the rest of this interview, the... When fishes are caught by fishing vessels, for example, they're, they're never, almost never measured by individual. They're measured by the ton. Farmed animals are almost always measured by the the, the individual, the the unit, so to speak, rather rather than the weight. When we think about how we exploit fishes, it lends credence to what you're saying that more often than not, we don't consider them as as individuals. Yeah, and and maybe partly that is is that they're that they're fishes and we're kind of kind of alienated from them. But also, just the numbers are so astronomical, uh, it would be challenging to count them. But if you do some rough, you know, calculations based on the weight of an average fish, estimates of the numbers of individuals we kill every year for human consumption range anywhere from several hundred billion 
to possibly over two trillion. Uh, and I worked out that if it was a, if it was a, that a trillion or more, and you line them up end to end, they'd probably reach the sun and back, and you'd still have quite a few left over. It's just almost unfathomable the numbers, um, and yet the the astronomical numbers are utterly irrelevant to the individual in terms of how it, the the fact that it remains that no matter how many you're talking about, everyone is a unique individual who has their own wants and needs and desires and pleasures and pains. I'll have to apologize in, in advance for this next question because um, it's it's not pleasant, and um, but it's something that's been a growing trend uh, in New Zealand over the last sort of six months. It started leading into, into Christmas last year, and um, just now we've been seeing more reports of it happening. Uh, but essentially it's... This trend, this growing trend of supermarkets selling live crayfish, their 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 selling point is that it's it's fresh. You know, they can when they cook it and serve it, it's as fresh as it possibly can be. Now, from animal rights, we're an animal rights organisation, so we advocate for plant based veganism. So we're obviously utterly opposed to any kind of consumption of fish. But from a from a welfare perspective, it's something that we're being quite concerned about because there is a risk that inexperienced home cooks could be putting live crayfish straight into boiling hot water because they have to be killed in a certain way before um, or, or else they're, they're fully conscious when, when they go into, into this hot water. What, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, well, first of all, um, we are now talking about a, a different group of animals. We're no longer talking about vertebrates when we talk about crayfish and lobsters and crabs. They're close relatives among the crustaceans. Uh, we are talking about a different group of animals, but that's no reason to dismiss them and say and just assume that they they can't feel pain, which is a very widespread assumption. There's a lot of discussion and debate, or a growing amount of debate about that among scientists, which is good to see. Um, it used to be just as tacitly assumed that these animals, because they lack a spine, uh, they have they lack a mind and they lack ability to feel anything and have any experiences. There has been some 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 science done now over the last decade or two in particular by Robert Elwood and his his colleagues, uh, formerly at the University of Belfast. He's semi-retired now, but he's done some pretty compelling studies on, uh, for instance, glass prawns, a, a kind of shrimp. When they pinched one antenna and left the other one unpinched, uh, the prawn protected and, and groomed the uh, the assaulted antenna and left the other one alone. And then when they put a, I think it was... Um, I forget the name of the painkiller, but they put a painkiller onto the uh, onto the injured antenna or the pinched antenna. Uh, the 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 prawn stopped grooming it and stopped tending to it. Um, they did studies with shore crabs that found when they cut the when the fishermen the crab fishermen cut the crabs. Uh, front front claws off to sell and then to toss them back in mortality rate was much higher than if they weren't cut and there were some indications of stress and pain i don't remember the details from that study however with hermit crabs they did a study where they kind of devious and it, it speaks to the the lengths that scientists will go to test these things they actually had different empty shells these are these are crabs who climb into another shell and use it an empty shell discarded from another from a mollusk and they use it as their home and they crawl around in that and um I found that um, they they put little electric wires into each into each into different shells so they could deliver a, a mild electric shock to the crab when he or she went into the shell, and they found that 
crabs remembered a shock and would hesitate to go into a shell, even though it was preferred, a preferred shell because it was the right size, and they would rather go into a less preferred shell, given that they 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 were not going to, they presumably weren't expecting an electric shock in the other in the less preferred shell. So they'd make a they'd pay a cost to avoid an electric shock. Um, they were also more likely to get out of a shell of a, of a less preferred shell than a preferred shell once they'd gone in if they get electric shock. So there's various ways, nuanced ways of testing these things. The responses of the hermit crab, suffice to say, were consistent with a noxious experience and not merely a reflex. Lastly, and it's not lastly because there's other studies that I'm not touching on here, but I did, do want to mention a, specifically a crayfish study. I don't remember the the chemical that they use, but it's something it's something associated with the pleasure centers of animals, and it stimulates a pleasurable response if you have the right makeup to experience a pleasurable response. And crayfish put in a tank, uh, they went towards that chemical when it was introduced into the tank, and they preferred to spend time there than where the chemical wasn't. Uh, sorry, I don't remember the name. I meant to look it up. But uh, so the, I, I mentioned that last study because A, it refers to crayfish, which your question was referring to, but B, it also refers to the flip side of pain, uh, at least in the experiential sense, which is pleasure, uh, which is uh, also something that I think is very relevant to the question of uh, animals' experiences. So, so what are some of the big risks that fishes in, and aquatic life are facing currently and, and in the future? Oh, it's a litany. I mean, uh, we have, of course, we have climate change, which is a, which is a very broad disruptor of so much. Um, it's probably linked. I think it's linked to o- ocean acidification, where the uh, pH level is coming down in the oceans. It's becoming less less uh, alkaline than it used to be. Uh, we see cor- coral bleaching events. Uh, Great Barrier Reef being a prime example, where corals are casting out their um, the algae, which are which they survive with and um, the corals are bleached and they, they stand the risk of dying. And of course that's bad news for all the other animals that depend on them. There's the problem of plastic waste, uh, microplastics, tiny, tiny little beads, which uh, end up in the, by the quadrillions in certain bodies of water. And they resemble for tiny little baby fish who can only eat small things. They often eat eggs of other animals. And these little plastic beads resemble eggs. So they ingest them. And of course, they're unable to metabolize them. And their stomachs uh, rupture under the pressure of the buildup of these things. Um, fishing gear, it's been estimated 640,000 tons of fishing gear are lost or discarded in the oceans every year, which of course all points towards the biggest problem of all, arguably more than climate change, and that is the fact that we fish them in huge numbers. We already talked about the numbers, commercial fishing, even recreational fishing has been estimated in one published paper to account for over uh, close to 50 billion animals, uh, fish a year being taken out. Some of them are tossed back. Some of them don't survive that. Uh, but it's a, it's a very widespread problem for fish as well. But commercial fishing, the numbers, as we, we already mentioned, the numbers, it takes a huge toll. And the methods by which animals die in commercial fishing are not pretty. They're, 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 they're a function of convenience, not, not an effort to make life easier or death easier for the, for the victim being crushed in nets with 100,000 other fish as the nets pulled up to the surface, um, exsanguination, suffocation on the deck, um, decompression if you're fished at depths where your swim bladder, the swim bladder inside the fish expands, crushing neighboring organs and forcing organs out of the mouth, eyes popping out. I mean, it's just very ugly. And so the methods, the ways that fish die in commercial fishing are routinely 
not they're horrible. Uh, I, I hesitate to use the word cruel. I don't want to suggest that it's intentional cruelty, but from their perspective, it's a cruel way to go. But you, you've noted uh, a climate change and, and human behaviour that's having an impact on on aquatic life. And like many species um, on the land, there's species in the water is uh, are threatened. What is the risk to the global ecology? so to speak, or the, the, the global natural world order if, um, so to speak, our oceans die or large amounts of aquatic life become extinct. What kind of ramifications can that have? Uh, we're basically, if the oceans die, we're, we're just, we've just dug a big gravestone for a grave hole for humanity because we live on a, on a complex planet where everything's inter- interdependent. The oceans are utterly, utter, utterly indispensable to life on land. Uh, consider that more than half of all oxygen is produced by blue-green algae, which are in the oceans. So that alone is a, is a sobering thought. Uh, people talk about the you know all of at the rate we're going that all the fish will be gone by 2050. Uh, maybe at the maybe maybe the math is correct, but the reality is uh, that we won't be around to bring them to that point. Thank goodness, but because we we're completely interdependent on on healthy marine ecosystems and healthy ecosystems, so um, we really need to look in the mirror and realize that what happens to the planet happens to us. We're part of the planet. We're completely dependent on it for our survival. And I think we're getting a little glimmer of that right now. We're seeing, you know, how it affects us uh, with uh, when we're not careful about what we eat and how that where that food comes from. I mean, these wet markets in China are thought to be apparently the origins of the coronavirus, and that's not new. We've had swine flu, the bird flu. We've had other 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 pandemics that have not had the global effect. Now that we're in this global economy and everyone's moving all over the place, so it spreads so rapidly. Um, but but it's not a new thing, and we, but we unfortunately we haven't really learned from it. And I am you know while it's it'd be better maybe if we didn't have to go through bad hard times to come to our senses, but uh, this may be a blessing in disguise, or we may need to be get hit hit over the head repeatedly in future before we come to our senses. We need to stop acting like we're the planet is here just for us. We need to control our numbers. Talk about an elephant in the room. There's no discussion of human population control or almost none, and that really is another ultimate influencer of so many of the problems that we face there's simply too many humans do you think you mentioned the current state of affairs and um the the impact that our consumption of animals uh, or how the consumption of animals has been implicated in, in COVID 19 um do you think this will be a wake-up call for some people do you think this will be this this could trigger a, a ch- um a sea of change, so to speak? I think it will be a wake-up call to some people, but I, I, I'm not too optimistic that it'll be a sea change. I don't think the ramifications and the harms to us are severe enough. I'm not saying I want that to happen. I don't. I, it would be nice if we learned uh, and proactively took the steps we need to do rather than reactively. Uh, but based on what I've seen from humanity in the past, I'm not super optimistic. Uh, I do admire humanity's innovativeness, humankind's ability to implement sweeping changes quickly when you consider the end of the international slave trade uh, you consider the end of uh, the, the success of suffrage to get voting rights for women New Zealand one of the I think possibly the first nation to, to do that in 1893 if I remember correctly um, and uh, civil rights uh, you know animal rights is, is one of, is, is a great future social change that we hopefully will come to but uh, how, however we get there um, 
we are we are gonna see some tough times i think before we'll get to it unfortunately that's we don't seem to learn proactively we tend to be more reactive i hope i'm wrong you've been listening to animal matters this podcast is brought to you by safe for animals new zealand's leading animal rights organization and produced by myself will appleby make sure you subscribe to say across animal matters on wherever your favorite platform is If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, kakitea anoa.